When George Floyd was killed in May, a dear friend uh, who I love and respect very much, uh, a, a black friend, wrote me uh, an impassioned letter, and he he pleaded with me to uh, to take a stand, to uh, not be silent, and uh, to join the movement. We've since talked about that letter many times. I've prayed about it, agonized over it, because I, I was not sure the best way to respond to the death of George Floyd. And one reason why is, in limited and humble ways, I'm trying to be have been involved with racial justice for 25 years, and I hope to be the rest of my life. And I didn't necessarily think that that moment demanded a change of course. And I also felt that for 400 years, uh, we have been wrestling with this problem, and we will continue to wrestle with it. And what was needed was a, a long obedience in the same direction, and um, not just a lot of reacting. But I knew that some response was called for. And um, what, what we decided to do, what I decided to do was just stay with the Scripture, preaching verse by verse through it. And then when the text of the Scripture came up that addressed issues like racial justice, to uh, speak to that subject from those texts. And tonight's text brings up this theme of racial healing and racial reconciliation. John Stott, in his commentary in the book of Acts, he says uh, that the question that we should be asking as we open chapter 10 of Acts is, how will God succeed in breaking down Peter's deep-seated racial intolerance? The principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. So this is a story really about two conversions, about how the first Gentile is converted to become a follower of Christ, and secondly, about how Peter is converted from racial prejudice so that he enters into a relationship with Cornelius and can share the gospel with him. So it's a beautiful text that balances both the importance of preaching and sharing the gospel and the importance of uh, having our, our racial prejudice exposed and, and changed. And on Acts 1.8, Jesus told the disciples that they were to share the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. In Acts 1 through 7, we watch the gospel go into Judea. In Acts 8 through 9, we watch the gospel go into Samaria. And in Acts 10 through 28, we watch the gospel go into the ends of the earth. And it revolves around Cornelius, this first Gentile convert. And in the next couple of weeks, we're just going to read this story slowly together. Uh, if you have time this week, you might read Acts 10.1 all the way to 11.18, so you kind of get the flow of the whole story. And we're just going to listen to it. We're just going to see what comes up uh, around these themes, both of evangelism and racial justice. Let's read it again slowly. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So the story begins in a lovely city that's still there today, Caesarea. 
It's on the Mediterranean coast. It was a Roman city in a Jewish land. It was built by Herod the Great to honor the emperor Caesar. And already we know a lot about what's happening in this story just by the name of that city, because Rome put rulers like Herod and soldiers like Cornelius in Palestine to keep the people there in obedience to Rome. They were, we would say today, oppressors, occupiers. And this reminds us that Peter and his fellow Jews had been subject to some foreign power now for 600 years. Sometimes they were kinder than others. Herod the Great was ruthless, and the soldiers like Cornelius that came with Herod the Great were equally ruthless as they tried to tamp down on rebellion. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jews like Peter were not cross-cultural missionaries. There are many texts in the Old Testament that talk about the gospel going to the Gentiles and all the nations of the earth being blessed, Genesis 12, 3, and beautiful pictures of all the nations coming to worship in Israel. But by the time we get to the first century, those texts had kind of been forgotten. And, and it really was because years of oppression had forced Jews into kind of a survival mode. And so uh, Peter was not praying for the salvation of Gentiles. He was praying for their destruction in the day of the Lord. And so to be invited to Caesarea in the first century, which was the center of Rome's army and the center of Roman power, would have been like a young rabbi being invited to Berlin in 1938. It was not where you wanted to go. Now, Cornelius was a centurion, That meant that he commanded about 80 to 100 men. Centurions were tough. They had the highest casualty rate in the Roman army because they led their men into battle. And you had to be effective in battle for at least 10 years to even be uh, appointed uh, a centurion. And he says he's a part of the Italian cohort. That was an archery troop from, from Italy. He would have worn a silver helmet a short sleeve metal vest, a white tunic, a blue cloak, and war medals on his chest. And by this point, uh, if he's at this station, he's probably an older man. He is a grizzled veteran. He has seen much bloodshed around the world. And in peacetime, centurions were sent to enforce Rome's power. So he was the Gestapo. He was the face of Roman power in uh, Palestine for every Jew. Uh, This was also a period in the first century where there were increasing uprisings so that Rome was sending more and more soldiers into Palestine to keep the people down. And uh, when Luke writes Acts, he wrote it right at the time when there was a revolt in Jerusalem and 25,000 Roman soldiers had just flooded into Palestine to put the revolt down, which they ultimately did, crucifying uh, many Jews on crosses. So the centurion was a dangerous man. Now, we have pictures of four centurions in the New Testament, and they're very sympathetic because they're coming to Christ, but that would not have been the way that a first century Jew would have thought of a centurion. He was a terrifying man. But he's also a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, 
prayed continually to God. So he's what they they called a a God-fearer. He had not become a Jew, but he decided to worship the God of Israel. And that wasn't entirely unusual, but it was very unusual for a Roman soldier to worship the God of Israel. And here's why. There was a religion of the Roman army that centered around the worship of the emperor. And you were, you were supposed to take a vow at the beginning of every year to worship the emperor as your Lord and Savior. Those were the, the words that were, were used. And they recently, I read today, they recently found a calendar from a Roman military unit. And a third of the days were set aside for feasts and worship of Caesar. So it was an extremely religious organization, and it revolved around this idea of, imp- of worshiping the current emperor and emperors that had been deified before them. So that tells us that something very powerful is happening in Cornelius's life to essentially risk his life to start to worship the God of Israel. Um, Cornelius really becomes a symbol of the rest of the book of Acts. He's the face of Roman power. He's serving the emperor as Lord and Savior, but he symbolizes what's going to happen in the rest of the book. The whole empire is going to be reached with the gospel. A new kingdom is broken in. The Savior and Lord of his kingdom is Jesus Christ. Now, the one thing that that strikes me before we go on is, who are the Corneliuses? in our lives. Uh, I, I frankly am, am getting a little tired of failed evangelistic efforts. <laughs> and as I was meditating on this passage, one of the things that struck me was to be more mindful of the people who God is already preparing to receive Christ. And to to pray that we could see that person and know who that person is and not just blindly try to share the gospel with anyone, but ask that God would show us the people in our lives who God is prepared to hear the gospel. What about the ninth hour of the day? He saw a vision, an angel of God come in and say, Cornelius, Uh, Devout Jews prayed three times a day. This was three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, It was the time of the afternoon temple offering. And so this man is practicing Jewish piety. He stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? He said, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa. Bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. Now, there are a couple of literary details here that tell us that something big is, is afoot. Peter is staying in Joppa. And if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, that might ring a bell. Because 800 years earlier, God had told Jonah to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. See, this is not a new idea. Jonah went to Joppa and instead of going to the Gentiles, <laughs> went exactly the other way in disobedience. And so now Peter gets a second chance, and the reader, particularly a Jewish reader who knew the Old Testament, is wondering, will Peter act as Jonah did, or will he respond to the invitation 
cross the cultural barrier and move into relationship with someone from another race and culture. So you might ask yourself, are you at a Joppa moment in your life? Is there an invitation in your life right now to cross over a cultural or racial or social or gendered barrier to build a relationship with someone unlike you that you might be and share Christ with them. Peter is forced out of Jerusalem due to persecution, and so he visits the little churches all along the Mediterranean coast. And there's some real irony in where he's staying. Because we'll find that Peter is a devout Jew that cares deeply about the food laws. And the food laws said that uh, there were certain foods that were off limit, that certain dead animals were off limit, that you weren't supposed to be around bloody animals, that you shouldn't even be at fellowship with people like that. So where does God put Peter in Joppa? In a tanner's house. <laughs> now, a tanner was someone who slaughtered animals <laughs> for a living. And so uh, the tanner's house would have been covered with defiled animal carcasses. And uh, a, the, the, a, he was probably a Jew, but the reason why he's on the sea is because that behavior was so repugnant, not to mention the smell, was that they put tanners on the outside of the community. And so Peter who cares deeply about food purity, is forced somehow to stay with someone who, whose very lifestyle violates the purity laws. Now, I wish we knew more about that part of the story, but what strikes me is that could God have been preparing Peter for Cornelius' message? Could he have been introducing him to someone just a little bit different, someone who was kind of marginalized but somewhat close, and having him build a relationship so that he might see, you know, people different than me actually aren't bad. I can learn something from them. Uh, maybe the gospel is bigger than I thought. And so a question for you is, is there a Simon Tanner in your life tonight. You know, someone who's just, maybe they're not kind of in your circle. Maybe they're a little bit outside. Maybe they do some things that you feel a little uncomfortable with or believe some things, practice some things you feel a little uncomfortable with. Maybe part of you wonders if you'll become dirty if you associate with them. God may be inviting you to build a relationship with that. Simon Tanner. Who knows what you might learn from them? You know, when, when uh, George Floyd was killed, th there were lots of fervent uh, prophetic calls uh, for the church to do something, to say something, to not be silent, to join the movement, to speak up. And uh, I don't remember a, a time in my ministry when I've been more troubled by and prayed more over challenges like these. And, and the question I think that everybody's asking is, what does it look like to stand for justice, to stand for Christ in this time? You know, do you, do you put a Black Lives Matter 
uh, on your webpage? Do you preach a series on racism? Do you post essays on Facebook? Do you study critical race theory? Do you form a reading group? Or do you, do you focus more on evangelism? Do you focus more on worship and spiritual formation? These, these are all ways people have responded to the racial crisis in our country. And uh, I, I don't spend much time evaluating them. Um, I trust their journeys. I trust that each Christian is responding as best they can to this challenge. And personally, I do believe that changing laws and writing editorials and voting are, are important Christian practices and that they do, that they do help. Uh, I also think our story tells us that we can never forget the simple process of evangelism of sharing our faith as a very, very important way of changing society. But what strikes me as we end here tonight from this little story is relationships. I, I, I confess, I, be, I, I guess I am judging a little. I don't want to judge at all. I do wonder sometimes about the efficacy of social justice on Facebook. And I think what I wish would happen is that we would spend less time posting and more time with Simon the Tailor and Cornelius. What you see happening in this story, which is about a conversion to the gospel and about a conversion from racial prejudice, is God sovereignly moving the players around on the board to get them into relationship with one another. And as I said, I've been humbly and probably pitifully pursuing this racial justice theme for 25 years. Been to conferences, read books, listened to podcasts, heard sermons, been in encounter groups. And I think I've learned from all of them. But the only thing that's really changed me is my relationship with a handful of people of color that's gone on for years and gotten to the point where they trust me enough to send me a letter demanding that I do something I'm not sure I'm going to do. You know, I understand that God works in people in different ways. He may not be convicting you about race right now. Um, if he is, I would suggest that a good place to start is to pray for a Cornelius, to pray for a Simon Tanner, to pray for someone from another culture or race or even gender orientation or social status to begin building a relationship with. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The conversion of Cornelius and the conversion of Peter has begun. Let's pray. Lord, this, there's, there's a couple things going on in this story that are so important. There's, there's the conversion of Cornelius. The, there's the sharing of the gospel. There's witness. There's evangelism. There's repentance from sin. There's new birth. 
And I pray that you would help us have eyes to see the Corneliuses around us, the, the friends and neighbors and loved ones, and maybe acquaintances who in this difficult, difficult time are just, just wanting to, f- to find you, looking hard for you. And they just need a friend who might come along and share a good word about Jesus. Lord, I pray that one of the fruits of this pandemic season would be that many Corneliuses might come into the family of God. And Lord, this is also a sermon about conversion from racial prejudice. And the the irony of all this is Peter just couldn't see it. It was just too baked in. And so you moved not within the family of God, but outside of the family of God to expose that prejudice. So, Lord, I pray you'd bring voices into our lives that would expose prejudice. And I pray that you would bring Corneliuses and Simons into our lives whom we could build loving, enduring, long-term relationships with. And Lord, as we go into this last two weeks of this crazy election season, when everything in our culture is splitting up, everything is dividing, everything is polarizing, here's a story about two groups of people that hate each other moving towards each other. And life and healing and joy coming as a result. So may our little family, whether we're gathered here tonight or virtually, may May we be marked by a movement towards those who are different than us and a love for one another. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.